1 Corinthians chapter 11. As Paul addresses the issues brought up by the Corinthians in their letter to him, he deals with the issue of eating meat offered to idols and eating it in pagan temples. And he did so, we've seen in chapter 8, in the light of the basis of Christian conduct. It is to be love, not knowledge. The question of freedom, which comes up in chapter 9. And then the example of Israel, which we saw in chapter 10. Those who had privileges, and Paul redefines these privileges as baptism and the Lord's Supper, but they failed to gain the prize. And then he brings up the question of worship. That is, how can you participate in the Lord's Supper, it's an aspect of worship, and then run over to a pagan temple and eat there, eat meat that has been offered to idols? In a sense, keeping within that theme of worship, Paul now addresses three abuses of worship found in the Corinthian congregation. Uh, The first is the issue of women and coverings, which we will look at today. Then the abuses of the poor in the Lord's Supper, which the Lord willing we will look at next week. And then the issue of speaking in tongues. He will deal with these in the next four chapters, 11, 12, 13, and 14. And if you include chapter 10, in which he talks about eating the Lord's Supper and then going to a pagan temple and the whole, how can you worship God and then worship demons? Paul spends five chapters of the 16 of this book dealing with the issue of public worship. And in fact, you can find other places in chapter five when he talks about the man who needs to be put out of the congregation. They need to gather as a congregation for public worship and put this man out. It is in these chapters that Paul makes some of his strongest statements for which he is best known, but usually in a very negative way. And I would argue, and as we go through, that Paul is really misunderstood uh, in what he says, and therefore people have a very negative view of him. Just an aside here. It is only the third abuse, apparently, that they write to Paul about, because if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, uh, it starts out with that phrase, now about. And as we've seen, that that's sort of a marker. This is something that the Corinthians wrote him about. Um, But I think you'll see that as we go through this, that Paul is responding to their letter. He's not simply using the marker that we've seen in other places. He starts out in verse number two uh, by saying, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. In verse 17, he will say in the following directives, I have no praise for you. And in verse number 22 and 23 as well. So either he has received reports about their abuses in public worship, or in fact they have written to him and they have told him, Paul, all is not lost. We are in fact keeping the teachings and the traditions that you taught us. Part of the difficulty that we face, and we will face as we go through these chapters, is that We only have Paul's side of the story here. This is a dialogue, but we're only hearing one side of it. Paul and the Corinthians both know what's going on, but in a sense, we're on the outside. We've only heard his side. I think Paul and the Corinthians understand each other. Uh, When he says certain things that to us just seem really odd and strange, the Corinthians know exactly what he's talking about, because that's part of the dialogue that's been going on. 
Today we will look at the first abuse in public worship found in the Corinthian congregation, that is, the issue of women and head coverings. Now, we have to reconstruct what the problem was, because it's not stated explicitly, but apparently it had to do with Corinthian women, the believers, who were coming into the congregation and their physical appearance, what they were doing in public worship. It seems from the passage that there were women in the Corinthian congregation who were coming to church and praying and prophesying or preaching, but they were doing so without something on their head, without their heads being covered. Now, what uncovered means is really debatable because we don't know. They know, Paul knows, I mean, they're going back and forth, but here we are, 19 centuries plus later, uh, we're not quite sure what was going on. Some people think that it refers to a piece of cloth or a veil, some external covering. Um, this seems to be supported by what Paul will say to the men about the men not having their heads covered. Some think it refers to women's hair, women having long hair, while others say it's not actually the hair, it's the hair being loosed. That in that culture, a woman is, was supposed to not cut her hair, but it was always supposed to be worn up and not simply loose. Um, we'll get to that in a bit. Why the Corinthian women were doing this is also debatable. We've seen already in First Corinthians that gender roles and uh, issues were significant issues to the church. There seemed to be a belief among the Corinthians that the resurrection had already happened. See, when you talked resurrection to the Jews, they got it. It's an Old Testament teaching. When you said resurrection to the Greeks, and the Corinthians were Greeks, they're in the province of Achaia, they didn't get it. Resurrection had no place in Greek thinking whatsoever. So, Paul preached that Jesus rose from the dead after three days, and the Corinthians said, okay, we can buy that. But then when Paul said, you will also be resurrected, that was a lot more difficult for them to embrace. And so, apparently, when he left town, they're like, forget what Paul says, that can't be right. The resurrection has already happened. And as we've seen in chapter, Paul, uh, chapter 4, Paul says, already you have all you want, already you have become rich, already you have become kings, and that without us. To them, the resurrection had already happened. And if the resurrection had already happened, what Jesus said about resurrection life, we would be like the angels, no gender, no marriage. So it doesn't matter how you live because we're like the angels now. Paul will save, and I'm not sure why he does this because I think I would have put chapter 15 earlier, but he saves his long chapter on the resurrection, a classic statement of the resurrection for the end of his letter. I do think something I want to be clear about here, and that is that Paul allowed women to participate in public worship. He allowed them to pray and to prophesy or to preach as women. And to me, this is really clear. And it, uh, I remember some years ago in a, in a Bible school bringing this up and being sort of shouted down. But if you look at verse number five, um, Paul says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If you look at that verse, Paul doesn't say she dishonors herself by praying or, or prophesying. He says if she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, then she's doing something wrong. Uh, that is Paul's way of thinking. 
women were in fact allowed to pray and to preach in public worship. The problem is the women in the Corinthian church are praying and preaching as men. That is, if, if they're supposed to wear a covering and whatever that was, they're saying, no, we're like the angels. There's no male or female, and so we'll dress like men. And we have cross-gender issues here because the women say it doesn't really matter if we look like women or like men, and that's what Paul is trying to deal with. Paul responds to this abuse in three parts. And it's actually two parts. It's sort of an, an A, B, and an A again. That is, from the culture... He talks about shame. And then from scripture, the creation account. And then he goes back to the culture in verses 13 through 16. But as I said, before he gets to this, he starts out in verse number two. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings or the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Now, if you've been with us at all in in our study of 1 Corinthians, this should seem like an astounding statement to you. This congregation seems to have done everything in its power to ignore Paul, to forget Paul, to erase any memory of his teaching. In fact, they have written Paul a letter to say, Paul, we see things in an entirely different way. And Paul's writing back to say, no, 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 you guys are wrong about that. You're wrong about marriage. You're wrong about eating in pagan temples. And now they're wrong about women in public worship. Yet Paul praises them for remembering and following his lead. And uh, we have two options here. Either, in fact, Paul is indeed praising them for what he had passed on to them, which a phrase that we will hear later as we have communion comes from the next section. Or Paul was being ironic, even sarcastic. It's like, hey, you guys are doing a great job of keeping in line with the things that I taught you. Certainly, Paul has been highly sarcastic in this letter and highly ironic. And it may, in fact, be that he's doing that again. I think what determines it for me is if verse number two is only connected up to verse number 16, then Paul is, in fact, praising them. But if it is the introduction to what we will find all the way through chapter 14, Paul is being highly, highly ironic and very sarcastic. I mean... The public worship in the Corinthian church must have just been a disaster. Um, From what we'll see in chapters 12 and 14, you have people speaking in public in gibberish. You have people who are preaching at the same time. I mean, as difficult as it may be for you to listen to me sometimes, imagine if there were three of us speaking at the same time. And then you have women who are publicly, in the course of the sermons, not just sermon, but sermons going on, asking their husbands, what does he mean by what he just said? And then throw into the mix the fact that women are coming to church dressed like men. It it seems that Paul, in fact, might be a bit sarcastic in what he writes here. Let's deal with the first aspect, and that is the aspect of shame. Why women are to not come to church dressed as men. Verse 3 through 6. Follow along if you would as I read. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. 
it is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. Paul starts out by establishing a theological position, which is the basis for what will follow. He doesn't try to prove it. Um, it's not the main thrust of his argument. He's simply trying to establish some certain things. And it is this. The head of man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. The question is, what does Paul mean when he says the head of man is Christ? What is he referring to? I think it's a metaphor. I think most people agree with that. The question is, is the metaphor speaking of hierarchy? That is position. Christ is over man. Man is over woman. Oh, and by the way, God is over Christ. Is it hierarchical or is he speaking in terms of relationship that is source of life? Christ created man. Woman came from man. And Christ, the incarnation, came into the world as God the Father caused Mary to become pregnant with the child. I think it's the second. And yet, traditionally, most people view this in terms of authority. Christ is in charge of the men. The men are in charge of the women. Oh, and by the way, God the Father is in charge of Christ. And the order, that, that's sort of out of order. But if you take the creation order... Uh, Paul is very clear in many places that Christ is the creator. Colossians chapter 1, Christ created all things. So Christ is the source. He is the origin of life for men, for man. And then when woman was created, she was taken from man. So man is the source of origin for woman. Thousands of years later, Jesus comes into the world through the Virgin Mary, through the work of of God. And so God is the origin of the source of the life of Jesus. So, Paul says that that man is in fact the source of origin for the woman. Having established that, it's like so what? Who cares? What does that mean? Paul goes on to say that every man who prays or prophesies with his head un- or with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, here we get into strange territory, because I think one head is literal. If you cover your head, you dishonor your head, metaphorical. And that's, where I think, where the difficulty comes in. Paul here, by the way, is speaking of public worship. If he weren't, he would only say praying. If you pray with your head covered, you dishonor. But praying, preaching or prophesying, proclamation, that's public. I also think what throws us with this passage is we tend to view Paul as Jewish, and he was. The early church as predominantly Jewish, which it was, but not in Corinth. They're predominantly Gentile. And now when we think of Jews praying today, where men wear the yarmulke or they wear a prayer shawl, we think that that was the custom back then. In fact, I've seen various uh, movies that have that portray Jesus in the synagogue where he prays with his head covered. That was not the custom. That came many, many years later. The custom was when you went to church, when you went to a temple, but certainly when you went to a congregation of the people of God, men prayed without anything on their head. 
Likewise, the opposite was true for women. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Again, Paul's not, the problem is not that women pray and preach. For Paul, that's perfectly acceptable. That is normal. Um, the problem is they're doing it as though they're men. Men don't cover their heads. Women do. So the women are taking off the covering, whatever that is, to say, I'm just like the men. Again, we're not clear about what her, her hair or head being covered means. They knew. Okay? They knew exactly what he was talking about. I tend to think that it was something external, a veil or a piece of cloth, uh, a mantle, but we just don't know. But all is not lost. We shouldn't say, well, since we don't know, this passage really can't teach us anything. Because certain things are clear from what we've read. First of all, there were two results of women coming to church and praying and prophesying with their heads not covered. The first was unintentional, and the second, or the first was intentional, the second was unintentional. The first thing, and they really intended to do, is it blurred the lines between male and female. Which is what they want, because in heaven there's neither male nor female, there's no gender, there's no marriage, we're like the angels. So let's come to church and let's be androgynous. No difference between male or female. The second result was really quite intentional, unintentional. She dishonors her head. The first is important, but I think it's the second one that helps us understand the passage. Because in verse number six, Paul says, if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, the King James has, if it is a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven. And I would argue that shame and disgrace are cultural values and that Paul is addressing them within the context of their culture. Values which were shared by people not in the congregation, but out there in the real world, if you wish. You might remember in chapter five, Paul was dealing with the man who is having a sexual affair with his stepmother. It's an incestuous thing. And Paul says something really to me that's quite dramatic and, and at first glance it doesn't make sense. Paul doesn't quote from Leviticus, Leviticus 18, don't do that. God says it's wrong. Paul says, you know what? They don't even do it. The unbelievers don't even do that. It's really shocking. Paul, why do you care what the culture does? Paul very much does care what the culture does because it's where we are. And Paul says, listen, if you come into church dressed as a man and acting like a man, you're doing something that is a shame. You're doing something that is disgraceful. Now, for those of us who were raised in a tradition where the church is to be countercultural, that we're not like the world, we want to look like Christians and smell like Christians and all that, I think we will have real problems with Paul here. Because Paul embraces his culture. He does not reject it. We'll get back to the culture when we get to verses 13 through 16. The second argument now that Paul gives about why women should have their heads covered is from, found from creation. Verses 7 through 12. Follow along if you would as I read. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. 
For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as, as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Paul's still addressing the same issue, but from a different angle. The interconnectedness between men and women. The argument is laid out this way. A man ought not to cover his head because he is the image and the glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. Man didn't come from woman, but woman from man. Both have their origin in God. So they're not independent of each other. A woman should have a sign of authority on her head because she had her origin in man and because of the angels. Understanding Paul doesn't get any easier, does it? As we get along, we go along, we might think, well, you know, this, this should get easier. It doesn't. But I think some things might help us to understand what he's saying. First of all, in the creation account, both male and female bear the image of God. Not just men. If you go back to Genesis 1, in the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. So both male and female together bear the image of God. I think that's important. Man is made in the image of God. So is woman. But woman comes from man. And therefore, Paul presents it the way that he does. Man bears the image of God. Woman comes from man. The second thing to keep in mind is that the creation account says nothing about man being the glory of God. Yes, the image of God, but not the glory of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, what could it be that Paul means? And I think what he means is that the existence of one brings honor and glory to the other. Thus, man is the glory of God, while woman is the glory of man. Man by himself is not complete. He is alone without a companion that is suitable for him. Woman is man's glory because she completes him. She came from him. She was created for him. She's not subordinate to him. She is necessary for him. He fleshes out. He becomes fuller. He becomes complete because of the woman. And together they form humanity. Therefore, I think Paul would say, a woman must, in fact, embrace the reality of difference. Male and female are different. And every culture has its ways of designating that difference. In this culture, it involved wearing something on the head. And therefore, Paul says that the Corinthian women should embrace what their culture says about the differences between male and female. But there are certain words that Paul uses here that throw things. Uh, two words specifically, authority and angels. In verse number 10, for this reason and because of the angels, a woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. What authority? 
She belongs, is she a possession? She belongs to her father until she's passed on to another male. She's passed on to her husband and he is now her authority. I find it interesting that the word that is used here is a Corinthian word. Permissible and freedom used in chapter 6 and 10 and then used in chapter 8. Um, I don't think Paul is saying women are oppressed, they are subordinate, they are inferior. And I, I was really surprised as I read commentaries who say, yes, that's what Paul is saying. I don't think he's saying that at all. He is saying that women have the freedom in the light of culture, in the light of creation, in the light of the angels. I'm sorry, they have freedom to do what they want, but in the light of creation, culture, and angels, they should not use that freedom. I think Paul would say, you know, if I had my way, women wouldn't have to wear anything on their head. But I don't have my own way. I live in a particular culture, and I follow what that culture says. Now, that's the authority one. What about the angels? Because of the angels. Again, it's not clear to us, but the Corinthians, I think, knew exactly what Paul was talking about. I've, I've mentioned this before as we've gone through 1 Corinthians. Paul talks more about angels in 1 Corinthians than he does in the rest of his letters combined. I mean, it keeps coming up at times when we would not expect it. In chapter 4, when he talks about the apostles being at the end of the procession, they're a spectacle to the whole world and angels. In chapter 6, he says that we will judge angels. And here he mentions it. And then perhaps the most familiar passage is from chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. It's like, what does that have to do with anything? Well, apparently the Corinthians, and this is part of the dialogue that Paul has going on with the Corinthians. Uh, I would just say I don't know what Paul means, but the Corinthians certainly did. And Paul's point is clear. When a believing Corinthian woman comes to church, if she wants to preach, if she wants to pray, she should follow what the culture says. She should wear something on her head. And Paul will say this, I think, we see in verses 13 through 16. Follow along, if you would, as I read. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This passage has been used for decades, at least in American culture, to argue that men should not have long hair. I find it interesting that few people, there are some, uh, to be fair, but few people have used it to argue that women should have long hair. It's always that men shouldn't have long hair, but they don't take the opposite side. And, and Paul is very clear uh, that long hair is the glory of, of women. The argue, argument, as many have insisted, is based on nature or natural law, that nature proves that men should not have long hair. In this passage, Paul appeals to their own judgment and their sense of propriety. What, what seems proper to you? Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you what is right and what is proper? What does Paul mean, the very nature of things? First of all, he is not appealing to nature 
or natural law. I think we need to be clear about that. He is, in fact, appealing to custom, to the cultural norms of their society. And if you think about it, does nature teach that men should not have long hair? I would argue it does not. Because what happens to a man if he doesn't cut his hair? It grows long. Okay? Now, if nature taught that men should not have long hair, we wouldn't have to get haircuts. Our hair would stop at a certain point and, and we wouldn't have to get haircuts. We have to do something unnatural to our hair. We have to cut it in order that we can go with the nature of things. Okay. I have, by the way, a piece. I'm sure you all do. You have this trivia rolling around in your brain. You're not quite sure why it's there. And hopefully it'll come become useful at a certain point. Um, the Guinness Book of Records for having the longest hair is a man in Vietnam. His hair is 22 feet long. Okay. So the nature of things, or nature itself, mother nature, does not teach that men shouldn't have long hair. Men have to get haircuts, otherwise their hair will grow long. Okay. Secondly, Paul is not saying men must have short hair, women must have long hair. In fact, uh, Josh did the reading last week from Acts chapter 18. I don't know if you caught it, but after 18 months of being in Corinth, Paul went to Cancrea, he's on making his way back home, and he cut off his hair because he had made a vow. And as best we can tell, for the 18 months that Paul was in Corinth, he did not get a haircut. That he made a vow to God, and we find these vows in the book of Numbers, that as long during this time of the vow, I will not cut my hair. I looked it up on the internet, just for the scientific. A hair, generally, your hair grows about six inches a year. Okay, so 18 months, that's about nine inches, which isn't super long, but I think for most people, that would qualify as long hair. I mean, unless he came into town bald, uh, he probably had normal hair, and then it grew nine inches before he cut it. Okay, so... Paul is not saying men must have short hair and women must have long hair. Rather, he is writing in terms of what is culturally appropriate, what is the norm for a given culture. In that culture, if a man had long hair, that is, if a man tried to look like a woman, it was a disgrace to him. And on the other hand, if a woman had long hair, that is, if a woman tried to look like a woman, based on that culture, it was her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Paul says, listen, you live in a given context. You should do what is appropriate within that context. And this is not as easy as you might imagine. I remember uh, hearing of missionaries who go to countries where it is the culture that the men sit on one side and the women sit on, other, on the other side. That's the culture. It would be scandalous for women to sit over with the men. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, well, that's, I don't like that. You know, that in Christ there's neither male nor female. That, that brothers and sisters should sit together. I think Paul would say, Damon, you're wrong. In that culture, it is unacceptable for men and women to sit together. And so when you meet for public worship, you should 
on some level, have the norms of the culture and not do something that is scandalous, or offensive to people who are not believers. Because unbelievers are coming into the congregation, we'll see in chapter 14. And if people come into your church and you're doing something that is offensive unnecessarily, then you've really, you've really done something wrong. If you remember in chapter 10, Paul says, when I'm with the Jews, I'm a Jew. When I'm with the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. When I'm in Corinth, I'm a Corinthian. I embrace the cultural norms there. Paul says, by the way, I'm not picking on you guys. This is the way it is in all the churches of God. You know, if, if anyone wants to raise a problem about this, listen, this is the way we do it in the church of God. Okay. Let's see if we can tie this up and make sense of it all. First of all, I think... Uh, that while there is a joy to going verse by verse and studying the Bible, you know, a passage like this is one of those things that makes you want to reconsider your position because you can't avoid it. You have to sort of go through it. It is a difficult passage, but it is scripture. And therefore, as Paul wrote to Timothy, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So what can this passage teach us? What can it train us for in terms of righteousness? I'll suggest three things. First of all, worship is important. Public worship is important. And it's seen in the amount of space that Paul uh, devotes to this matter. When God's people meet together to worship him, it is important that things be done properly. Now, it is also important what we do the other six days of the week. But when we meet together in a special way on the Lord's day to worship God, we must do things properly. The presence of God is with us when we worship in a special way. We need to be very careful what we do. Secondly, women are to be equal partners in worship. For Paul allows that they may pray, they may prophesy and preach. When we get to chapter 14, and Paul says some what seem to be harsh things about women, we will talk about it there. Paul is not saying that women are inferior, that they are to be in subjection, as some have suggested. They are, in fact, our sisters in Christ. They are to participate in public worship along with the men. And the third thing, I'll spend a bit more time here. What do we learn from this passage about a Christian and culture? I find this passage fascinating and troubling at the same time. Because it seems that Paul is saying that we should follow the culture. We should allow it to dictate to us how it is we are supposed to act. But if you think about it, that's sort of the way things are. If we could get on a plane, if we could travel quickly, if we could go to Africa or to India or to any other country and be with them on their Sunday morning worship, would they be dressed the way that we are today? Probably not. And why not? Because their culture is different than ours. There isn't one culture that all Christians in the world are supposed to follow. We dress the way that we do because of the culture. I think Paul would say that is appropriate. Uh, there is a caveat. There is a qualification. That's a question of modesty. We are not to be immodest. 
but we are to dress as the culture does. If Paul were to be with us today, would he be dressed like somebody from the first century? Or would he be dressed as we are? I would argue that if, if he were alive today, he would dress the way that we are. So why is it um, in that respect we sort of go with the culture, but in other respects we reject the culture? If a culture does not conflict with Scripture, then I think we are to follow it. When it contradicts Scripture, then we are obliged to go contrary to what the culture says. But we are not defined, and we should not be defined, or see ourselves in terms of being against the culture. And many Christians see themselves as counter-cultural. That whatever the culture does, that must be wrong, and therefore I have to do something else. No, not necessarily. And this is where chapter 10 is so important, where Paul says, if I'm with the Jews, I'm a Jew. If I'm with the Gentiles, I'm, with the Ge- I'm a Gentile. We, as God's people, are defined by that fact. We are God's people. We are not defined by the way that we dress, the way we comb our hair, the perfume that we wear. I mean, we are defined as God's people who live in this place, in this country, this culture, now. And living here and now, we are to share the gospel with those who are around us. Every culture, well, let me back up. Most cultures have markers that differentiate between men and women. I think back to when I was a kid and whenever we had Christmas plays at school. You know, the shepherds and and Mary and pretty much everyone wore a bathrobe, you know, and put something, you know, something on your head and, oh, I look like somebody from the first century. Uh, And whenever you see movies of people back then, it's like, well, they're all wearing robes. I mean... How can you tell the difference between men and women? Southeast Asia, before the coming of the West, men and women dressed, at least to our way of thinking, identically. They wore a sarong from the waist down. But every culture has those markers that says, no, I'm a man, no, I'm a woman. I think in Southeast Asia, where's where they put the knot. One side is woman, one side is man. The robes that people wore in the first century. There were certain things that from behind you be able to say, okay, that's a man, that's a woman. Most cultures have that. Okay? They have that because it goes back to the creation, where God, in fact, did make male and female different. Paul says, what seems proper to you? What does the culture say? Whenever you go contrary to the culture and say, listen, I don't care what they say, I'm going to dress like a woman or I'm going to dress like a man, then you're not only going against the culture, you're going, you're going against that which God instituted. As God's people, we need to understand we live here in this place. Um, I don't think there's any such thing as looking like a Christian. I think there's something maybe to looking like a Corinthian Christian or looking like an American Christian or a Chinese Christian. That's where the culture says what you're going to dress like. Remember when I was younger, this is back in the 60s, uh, Christian men were determined we're going to have short hair because all those hippies are wearing their hair long. And I asked myself, well, what happens when they start cutting their hair short? 
Are we going to grow our hair long? You know, whatever the culture is doing, we're going to do the opposite. No, no, it's not how it works. In this particular instance, the culture is right. Women dress one way, men dress another way. And don't come into the church of God and bring confusion and say, no, we're great, we're Christians, we have freedom. Our women dress like men. Paul says that doesn't seem appropriate. It seems shameful. It seems disgraceful. And when we meet together as God's people, it is important that we do things properly. Let's pray together. Father, this is a difficult passage. One that, at first glance, we might think has little to say to us. But may we take to heart what Paul says. The importance of worship. The importance of culture. And being your people in any given culture. I ask that in the days to come we would think about what has been said. Now we continue our worship by remembering the death of your son. One who came and lived among us. Gave his life that we might have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.